Good evening and happy St. Patrick's Day. I, uh, I was reminded um, that the table launched on St. Patrick's Day, which is, um, I think, appropriate for a couple of reasons, um, or interesting for a couple of reasons. Um, first, St. Patrick was, is the patron saint of evangelism um, to, to reaching beyond um, our walls. Um, but the other thing that kind of makes it interesting is we launched um, on St. Patrick's Day in the, in the H Street neighborhood, which a few years ago was even more of a kind of a party place than it, it is today. And so we launched with a Sunday evening service um, uh, on St. Patrick's Day on a, in a kind of a party corridor, which is just kind of interesting. So there's a lot of people to, to witness to as we were leaving church, as they were beginning their, their St. Patrick's Day evening. And so anyway, um, yeah, just reminded of green beer and all the other things that happened on the first Sunday we launched. Um, the, the one other story that I was reminded of as I was thinking about our launch was that we wanted to be a church from the beginning that was committed to Scripture and rooted in Scripture. And, and I think one of the problems with Christianity is we often begin with Genesis chapter 3 with the brokenness of creation rather than with Genesis 1 and 2 with the goodness of creation. So I thought the first sermon ever at the table should be on Genesis 1 and 2. But not only should we, we preach about Genesis 1 and 2, but we should read it, um, which turns out they're rather, it's a rather long passage. I didn't really think that through. And I also didn't think to ask anyone to read it. And so literally right before I went up, I grabbed someone and said, hey, can you read this passage? And they were about halfway through, and you could tell they were kind of winded and tired. And about halfway through, I was like, this was a really bad idea. Um, so since that time, we've shortened scripture. Um, we don't read entire passages anymore, um, but yes, yeah, it's, it's good to, I'm glad the tables made it past Saint Pat, that first St. Patrick's Day. Um, a couple quick announcements before we dive in. Um, uh, immediately following the service, we have a class called um, Leading at the Table, um, where we talk a little bit about how you can get involved, how you can lead at the table, but also uh, a little bit about how we view leadership um, and how we lead in relationship to our values. Um, and so I'd encourage you to go to that class. It's going to be taught. Um, it's in the, um, the chapel upstairs. And then, um, and then uh, we next Sunday after service, we have our Justice and Compassion Fair. And um, we're going to have leaders from our food market, um, from our soup kitchen, and then from our advocacy group called WIN. Um, all those leaders are going to be in the lobby after service. And so it's just a great um, opportunity to find out how you can engage, how you can connect. Um, and then the other thing, um, immediately following service, um, Matt Collinson right here. Matt's one of the, the leaders of our prayer team here at the table. Um, Matt is going to be leading a time of prayer uh, um, for uh, those who were massacred at the Christ Church Mosque. Um, we want to um, be praying with and upholding those who are suffering um, halfway across the world. So um, Matt will be leading that immediately after service and then the other thing on easter sunday we're just going to have we won't have an evening service we're just going to have a morning service um, but there's a lot we can't get in the space ahead of time and there's just a lot of setup that we need to do very early on and so we need your help and so if you're like i want to give back to jesus by helping the church on easter sunday morning um we would really appreciate it, as would Jesus, I'm sure. And so um, if you can uh, email serveatthetabledc.org, you can do it during the middle of church. Um, that's, you're, you're, you're allowed. Um, just, just send your name or um, cell phone number and say, hey, I, I'm willing to help on Easter Sunday. That would be awesome. Um, that just makes it easier for our teams. Um, so 
Yeah. Um, sorry, here I've got candy wrappers coming out of my pocket. So back in, the, back, back in the 1980s, before most of you were born, a few of you were like me and were born back then, but back during the 80s, there was this incredibly popular film, and, and, and it, it started a conversation. In fact, it was the top-grossing film of the year, 1985. And it, it, it began a conversation around this idea of, could we travel in time? And of course, the film um, is Back to the Future. Some of you may have seen it on TBS when you were bored at home because it seems to constantly be running, reruns of it. But I'm actually less interested in Back to the Future or to the question of can we travel in time. And I'm more interested in this guy. Um, see if we've got his picture up here. Marty McFly. Um, that is the, the, the main character in this film, the protagonist. Um, but it's played by a guy by the name of Michael J. Fox. And during the 80s, when I was coming of age, Michael J. Fox was everywhere. So he was in Family Ties. Any Family Tie fans here? He was in Family Ties, one. Um, he was in, uh, he was in uh, what, Teen Wolf. He was in Back to the Future. And in all these different movies, he always gets cast as kind of this lovable teenage everyman, right? And, um, and the problem is for Michael J. Fox is he then gets typecast and it is hard to see him as anything else as like this teenager. And so for years, he kind of gets stuck being viewed as the everyday teenager that we saw in Family Ties or in Back to the Future. Now, this happens a lot in Hollywood. I still, a slightly more modern reference that you, some of you might get, um, I still, every time I see Daniel Radcliffe, um, think of Harry Potter, right? No matter how hard, how old, he's like 30-something now, I still have a hard time not seeing him as the young boy in the Harry Potter movies. And when you're in Hollywood and you get typecast, it can be death for your career because it's really hard to break out of the images and perceptions that people begin to form of you. And they have a hard time, of, as, they have a hard time seeing you as anything other than this character that you played. So anytime I see any of the characters from Friends, so I see Ross or Rachel or Joey in any other movie or television show, they will always be Ross and Rachel and Joey to me. And it's actually been kind of hard for their career. None of them have had really breakout successes um, because they have been typecast. Now, we get typecast, and, and the reason typecasting works is because there's some truth to it. Like, every office has someone who reminds you of Dwight Schrute. Right? Every single office has someone. The reason that show is so popular and so lasting is because it mirrors life. Now, maybe they're not, the, the, the oddness isn't quite as exaggerated as the, as the show, but we see people in that show that remind us of people we know in real life. We also get typecast in relationships. Normally, in a relationship, there is one person who spins and one person who saves. In families, no matter how old you get, you will always be mama's little boy or mama's little girl. So to this day, this is a true story, to this day, my mom claims that I don't know how to cook. I'm actually a decent cook, you should know this. I'm actually a decent cook. But when she says, when she repeats that I'm not a good cook, she will tell the exact same story over that when I was 10 years old, I charbroiled the hamburgers. I mean, I just turned them into lumps of coal. 
That was 28 years ago. My mom cannot get beyond that moment. It's a true story. Like to this day, just a few months ago when she was here, I said I would cook dinner and she said, that's okay. I know you don't really know how to cook. And I'm like, I've been cooking for 28 years. I am actually a decent cook. People in our lives often typecast us. We're the funny ones, the serious ones, the dependable one. But we're also typecast by our past through the choices we've made, the decisions we've made, through things that have happened to us and through things that are no, that we had no choice in. They label us and define us. Some of us have areas of our lives we wish we could redo. That moment in high school, those college years, that moment in the office where you lost your temper. And, and it begins to shape not only how others see you, but also how you see yourself. You begin to say to yourself, well, I'm just the funny one, or I'm just the serious one, or I'm the dependable one, or I'm the dumb one, or I'm just a failure. And many of us, even when we want to break out of our typecast, play the same role over and over and over and over again. In Hollywood, playing a role or being typecast can mean the death of a career, but in life, it can mean depression and despair. And, and the problem is that not only do other people typecast us, and do we typecast ourselves, but we also believe that God typecasts us, that God sees us in a particular way, and, and that it is impossible for him to see us differently than whatever our mistake was, than whatever our failure was. And so the question that I want to ask this evening um, through a, a story from the life of Jesus is this. Is it possible to move beyond our typecast? Can we reinvent ourselves? Can we step out of the roles that other people have placed on us? Other people have given us the stories that other people have told over us? Can we live differently? More important, can God see us differently? Can God see beyond our mistakes and our failures, and the ways that we have typecasted even ourselves. So I want to I share this story um, from the life of Jesus. Um, we are in the middle of a series um, called Journeying with Jesus, and we are walking, um, we started this series before Lent, and now we're in the Lenten season, and we are going to walk through this series all the way up to Jesus' final moments on earth, um, and ultimately his death on the cross, and his resurrection. And what we've been doing in this series, the arc of the series, is we've been saying that Jesus came to do something completely brand new. It's not religion 2.0, but he came to have a complete break with the past. He came to create a new covenant, a new way of relating between God and man. He, ca he came to give us a new command. He came to give us a new movement called the church. Now, the problem, we've talked about this, the problem is when you, when you create a break with the past, when you create something brand new, someone loses out. There is a status quo, the order of the day, religion of the day, that ends up losing their position and their power. And I have sympathy for them, because imagine, and we talked about this last week, but imagine if your whole life you have built your identity around a particular value system. You have told yourself that I am a good person, I am a holy person, I am a righteous person based upon this particular way of seeing the world. And then here comes someone 
who says, no, 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 all your good works were rubbish, right? You think you're good. You look good on the outside, but on the inside, you are nothing more than whitewashed tombs. You'd be a little upset with the person who came and proclaimed this. Because the thing is, the, the Pharisees and the religious leaders that Jesus clashes with, they have typecast themselves and they've been typecast by everyone else as the holy people, as the good ones, as the upstanding ones. And they're threatened and they're angry by Jesus' words. And so they do what we all do when we become threatened. We try to control everything we possibly can. And so the Pharisees and the, or so the Pharisees and the religious leaders, they begin to try to trap Jesus. They try to shut him up and shut him down. And there's an incredible tension between Jesus and the religious leaders. And so today I want to look at a story from John's gospel. John chapter 8. John, as we've, as we've mentioned, is an eyewitness to the ministry of Jesus. He stood there. He hung out with Jesus. He, he, he watched as Jesus confronted the religious leaders as he confronted the Pharisees. But, but I hope that as we look at this story from John's gospel, that we can also begin to answer this question. Is it possible to move beyond our typecast? So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 8. We'll begin with verse 2. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people were gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. Now, the temple courts should not be reviewed or uh, viewed as like some holy, sacred, religious place that's very silent and somber. It's more like a bazaar or a, a marketplace. There's people and donkeys and yelling and talking and preaching and just, it's kind of a chaotic situation. And this time in particular, it's even more chaotic because we know if we read John chapter 7 that it was one of the seven high holidays or one of the seven holy days in the Jewish calendar. This particular time, it was at the very end, this is happening at the very end of the Feast of the Tabernacle or the Festival of the Tabernacle. And so whenever you have any holy day or you have any feast, everyone from the surrounding countryside comes into Jerusalem. So people who normally wouldn't be in the temple are now hanging out in the temple, and there are people everywhere. And Jesus, wherever he goes, draws a crowd. And so the people are gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. Well, at that moment, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman who had been caught in adultery. They had caught her in the very act. They had the photos to prove that she had done what they said she had done. So just imagine this. The temple court is crowded. People are yelling and talking and donkeys are doing whatever donkeys do. And they're pushing and shoving. It's the center of religious life. And then imagine through this crowd comes the pious religious leaders dressed as pious religious leaders dress dragging this woman who had been caught in adultery. They had her dead to rights. There was no denying it. She was guilty. In fact, it's very possible that she's half undressed. She's disheveled. It's very possible that they've taken her from where they caught her and brought her straight to Jesus. My guess is that she's humiliated. She's ashamed. She's afraid. She knows that the law of Moses says that if you're caught in adultery, you should be stoned. 
She knows that there is a chance that her life is about ready to end. And the thing that she will be remembered for will be her failure. Now, my guess is this is probably not her first failure. Maybe she's been known her entire life. Her typecast is the person who makes bad choices. And the religious leaders, they treat her as almost non-human, as not worthy of dignity. They treat her as just a pawn in their game. And we read that they made her stand before the group. She's humiliated. And here she is standing in the mental, middle of the temple court. Everyone is watching what's going down. The murmuring, the loud noises that were happening all over had begun to quiet because everyone just watched the religious leaders march in and march over to Jesus, dragging this woman. You can just feel the tension in this space. And what I think is interesting, this is just kind of an aside, but have you ever noticed that overly pious people end up treating people who fall below their standards as less than? as unworthy of love, as unworthy of dignity. We're so much better than you. You're not even worthy of dignity. So here she is. She's standing in the middle of the crowd, humiliated, thinking very possibly about how close she is to death, thinking that the final story that will be written about her, the story that will be told, is she was stoned in the middle of the temple courts for committing adultery. The wages of her sin was death. And I want to pause for just a moment because many of you, you know this story. And there's a tendency to jump ahead to the end, to the good part. The part where Jesus comforts her. But I want us for a moment to sit in the tension and the emotion of this story. Because... It's very possible that some of you here this evening understand what it's like to feel shame and guilt and humiliation. You understand what it's like to be typecast as unworthy. It might have been a mistake you made. Maybe it's been a label that was placed upon you. It may be something that you have nothing to do with and you can't do anything about. But for a good part of your life, you felt shame and you felt judgment. And ultimately, some of you have felt excluded. Because one thing good, good, pious, religious people are quite good at is excluding those who don't meet their standards. They wouldn't want to be associated with someone the likes of you. That's what this woman feels. She feels their shame and their scorn and their judgment. But the thing that's important to understand, the thing that's important to think about as we think about the story is that our, our experience with God is mediated through our experience with other people. We, we understand God to be loving through our experience of being loved by other people. But we also understand our experience of being shunned and excluded by God through being excluded and shamed by other people. So you can imagine she is dragged into the, the court of the, uh, into the temple court by the religious leaders, the people who claim to have an exclusive kind of 
exclusive relationship with God. They are God's mouthpiece. And so in this moment, as she's standing there feeling ashamed and humiliated and excluded, she not only feels that from her fellow humans, but she also at this moment feels that God is ashamed of her. That God judges her. That God has excluded her. She feels so far from God at this moment. And so these religious leaders, they begin a conversation with Jesus. They begin, and I think they're saying this with a little scorn. Hey, teacher, you got all these people around you. Hey, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. We have the pictures if you don't believe us. In the law of Moses, you know the law, you're a teacher. In the law of Moses, we're commanded to stone such a woman. Now, what do you say? I just hear the sarcasm just dripping in that one. Now, what do you say? Because what they wanted to do is, and we're, we're going to read, they were using the, this question as a trap in order to have an, a basis for accusing Jesus. Because what they were trying to do, the, Jesus, they hoped, was caught between a rock and a hard place. On the one hand, if he said, don't stone her, then he would be going against the law of Moses, and he was holding himself up as a teacher, as a rabbi. On the other hand, if he said to stone her, and you've got a group of people in that courtyard who are, who are ready to do something. There, anytime you've got a massive crowd of people in a really hot space, which it, I guarantee you it was, there was no air conditioning, you just, people start to do stupid things. You get a mob mentality and people begin to act in really foolish ways. And so you have all these people who are ready to see something happen. And if Jesus had said stone her, she would have been stoned. I guarantee you it would have been the end of her. But had Jesus done that, he would have been in trouble with the Romans. Because Rome was not okay with stoning someone to death without due process. And so they hoped to get Jesus to say the law of Moses was wrong. And if he did that, then they could tell everyone he doesn't really believe in the law. Or, on the other hand, get him to say she should be stoned. The crowd goes a little crazy. And then Jesus gets arrested for causing trouble in the temple courts. But, of course, Jesus does what Jesus always does. He, he flips the script. And so instead of answering him, them, what does Jesus do? He kneels down. Now I think in this moment when he kneels down, I think by this moment this woman was no longer standing, but she was sobbing on the ground. And Jesus kneels down, and I think he whispered some words of compassion to her. And then he begins to write in the dirt. And you have to imagine they're like, Jesus, what are you doing? Are you doodling? Seriously, why are you, what are you doing in the dirt? This is so fascinating. And the text doesn't tell us what he was writing. And all kinds of people have had their ideas about what he was writing. But I actually think we have a pretty good idea of what he was writing if we read this passage in its context. So let me give you just a little bit of background. In the previous chapter... We read that it was the Feast of the Tabernacles. The Feast of the Tabernacles, as I said, is one of the seven major feasts in the Hebrew calendar. You can read Leviticus 23 if you want like a more concise overview. And there were seven spring and fall feasts organized around the agricultural calendar, the cycles of planting and harvesting. The spring feasts were Passover, unleavened bread, the first fruits, 
and then Pentecost, which, by the way, the church adopts, adopts Pentecost from Judaism. And then the fall feast were the trumpets, then atonement, and then tabernacle. And the feast of the, the, feast of the tabernacles is the last feast of the year. And it was the feast right before winter. And the, the theme of this feast is water. It is a time to pray that water will come during the winter months so that they will have a spring crop, a spring harvest. So thousands of pilgrims would make their way into Jerusalem for eight days of feasting and staying in makeshift shelters. And during this eight-day feast, they would, um, they would party and they would drink wine and they would have fun with their friends and their family. But there would also be teachings that would take place during this time. And the religious leaders would teach during the eight days about the significance of water. Water as rain. Water as thirst. All these teachings about water. And then on the last day of the festival, what would happen is the high priest would, would offer a sacrifice. And he would take a pitcher of wine and a pitcher of water and he would pour it out on the sacrifice. That's how the feast ended. And then as he poured the water on the sacrifice, the crowds would yell out, Hosanna, Hosanna, God save us. Essentially, God, please bring water during the winter months so that we can be saved from drought and famine. So here's what's really interesting. In the end of chapter 7, what does Jesus do at the end of the feast? In a loud voice, because it's chaos during the feasting seasons, in a loud voice, he proclaims, let anyone who thirsts come to me and drink. You want physical water, but I have come to bring you spiritual water. I've come to bring you something else. Jesus chooses a moment when people were focused on their, their physical needs for water, and he calls them to a spiritual thirst, a thirst that he can do something about. It's really fascinating when you read it within the context of the feast. Now, the other thing that's just kind of an aside that's interesting, like very possibly the way these people in the story end up getting themselves into trouble is that they probably had a bit too much to drink the night before because one of the things that is part of the feasting was you would drink a fair amount of wine. And, and, and I mention that because in Deuteronomy chapter 14, this is one of my favorite verses in the Old Testament, um, but in Deuteronomy chapter 14, you're told that you were to have three types of tithes. You were to have a tithe to the temple, essentially your tithe to the church. You would have a tithe that goes to the poor, and essentially you are supposed to combine your resources with other people's resources and give them to help those in need. But then you are also to have a tithe for religious festivals. And the text basically says, set aside some money to go to the religious festival, and then once you get there, spend the money however you want. And it specifically says, spend the money on wine and good alcoholic drink, which I think is really interesting. Like the, these, which I grew up in a teetotaler denomination, so I would always go back to this verse. I'm just going on by what the Bible says. <laughs> but the point is, people would drink a lot of alcohol during these times. So you can imagine them ending up in the wrong tent and the next morning regretting their decision. So back to the story. So he bends down, Jesus bends down, and he writes on the ground. 
Now, they've been at the feast. And during the feast, the religious leaders have been teaching about water. But there's a specific passage from Jeremiah that they would read during the feast. And here are a few lines from it. This passage, because they've been talking about water, the passage is about dust. And it goes like this. Lord, you are the hope of Israel. All who forsake you will be put to shame. And then this is the line. Those who turn away from you will be written in the dust. And so what does Jesus do? He bends down. They know this verse. They know what he's up to. I think he bends down and he starts to write their names in the dust. He starts to write the names of the religious leaders standing in front of him. But let's keep going in the story. Because when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said, let any of you who was without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and he wrote on the ground. And I think when he stoops down the second time, the first time he'd started to write their names. Second time, I think he starts to write their sins beside their name. Because they run. Literally, they clear out of there almost immediately. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time until it was only Jesus with the woman left with the woman still standing there. They scattered. And Jesus straightened up and he asked her, Woman, where are they? Where are they? Where'd they go? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. And then Jesus looks at her and says, Neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. And what's so powerful about this moment is this woman is dragged into this temple courts by the religious leader, and I guarantee you in that moment that she has never felt further from God. But in this moment, she is now face to face with God and the flesh, and he is showing her grace and love and compassion, and he is calling her to be something more than she is today. He's saying, the story that has been written over you, the way that you have been typecast, is not the way you have to stay. You can live for something greater. You can be different. You do not have to be defined by your past, but you can be defined by your future. And in this moment, Jesus gives this woman a chance to be freed of her typecast, to have a different story written over her life. And what I love is that her accusers become a footnote to the story. The powerful religious leaders, the elite, they become a footnote to her story. And this woman who they viewed with such disdain and such scorn, she becomes central to the story of Jesus. We keep talking about her. We keep telling her story over and over and over, and they are nothing more than a footnote. And the same Jesus that helps her move beyond her typecast, that helps her move beyond the stories that have been told over her, that same Jesus invites us to step out of the way that we have been typecast. The stories that have been told over us. You need to know 
God isn't disappointed in you. See, because the problem for many of us is that we believe that God thinks about us the same way that other people think about us. Maybe it's our family of origin, someone really important to you in your life, and you've been wounded. You need to know that God is not disappointed in you. And the good news of the gospel is this, that who you were does not have to be who you are. Some of you need to step out of the boxes. Some of you need to step out of the typecast that you've been stuck in. Jesus wants to free you, and Jesus wants to give you a new name. I don't know what names have been spoken over your lives. Some of them have been positive, right? You're the overachiever. You're the religious one, the pious one, the holy one. And you've been trying your whole life to live up to that. It's actually killing you. Others of you, others of you, you've been told you're a failure. You're no good. You're a screw-up. There you go again. We never expected anything more of you. No matter what the story that you've been, that's been told over your life, no matter what typecast you've been placed into, Jesus wants to give you a new name. And that's beloved child. You are a beloved child of God. God takes delight in you. And some of you need to be reminded that God can see beyond your typecast. And he sees you as beloved children. And he wants the best for you. He wants you to fully become who he created you to be. That's why when we started this church on St. Patrick's Day so many years ago, that the first sermon I ever preached, we preached in Genesis 1 and 2 of the possibility of creation, that God created us in his image, that we are image bearers of the creator of the universe, and that when God saw us, he looks at us and says, we are very good. And we have all been extended grace beyond our wildest dreams. And it's a gift that we have to receive. But that gift also invites us to step out beyond our typecast. And here's what I want to say. Whether you are the ones throwing the stones, because some of us are the pious religious leaders. When we read this story, we, want to re- we often read ourselves into, we want, honestly, we want to be like the Jesus character that extends all the grace. That's what we want to see ourselves at. But the truth of the matter is, some of you are the people who drug her in there. You are the pious religious leader. That's who you've been your whole life, partially because the stories have been told over you. Whether you are the one throwing the stones or the ones on the receiving end, Jesus calls you to something more. He calls us to roles that defy the rocks and move towards him. He calls us to receive grace, to walk in truth, and to become all that we were created to be. I said this morning that that some of us, that we've had stories told over our lives that we need to move beyond. Some of us, it's, it's, it's mistakes we've made. Some of us, it's mistakes we've made over and over again, and we believe it about ourselves. Whatever the thing that other people say that we are, we believe that's true as well. 
And so some of you, you need to step outside of that typecast. You need to begin to make new choices, begin to choose to live differently. Who you are is not who you have to be. You need to know that. But the thing, actually, this, kind of, this isn't even in my notes, but it just kind of came to me as I was preaching and just had this real sense, and it was interesting because a couple people came up afterwards and just said that was the part that really resonated with them, with them, was that some of you have been typecast in life and that you have been trying your entire life to meet up to other people's expectations, other, the things that other people have placed on you. Some of you moved to the city not because it was your dream, but because somebody else had a dream for your life. They told you you should go to this school and you should get this degree and this is what you're going to do with your life. And you are living someone else's dream and you are miserable. The same Jesus who can free us from our brokenness and failure can also free us from the typecast that other people have placed on us, the roles that other people have placed on us, and we are called to step beyond them and to become the people that God has created us to be. Because what I believe is that God is in the process of redeeming all things, that God's future kingdom is entering into this present reality, and that we are called to participate in that reality, that thing is that is coming that is coming to fruition before us. But if that is going to happen, it requires our participation in us becoming fully who God created us to be. And some of you are playing roles that aren't who you were meant to be. And Jesus can free you from that. Jesus can free you from your brokenness and your mistakes and the stupid things that you keep doing over and over. But Jesus can also free you from the roles and the expectations that have been placed on you. You are a beloved child. And God wants nothing but the best for you. And so as you, in a moment, as you come forward and receive the bread and the wine, Pastor Richard is going to come and invite you to receive the elements. As you do that, as you come forward, I just begin to pray that you would just, that as you move towards this space, as you move towards the front to receive the elements, that you just begin to ask that God would free you from the, the stories that have been told over you. That you'd be freed from the typecast that have been placed on you. And that a new story would be written. And I don't even know what that story is. I don't think some of you know what that story is. But I'm excited about what God is going to do in and through you. I'm excited about the new story that's going to be written. So as you come forward, just begin to say, God, will you please release me from the things that have been, the stories that have been told over me, the boxes that have been placed in, the typecast that I viewed myself as, the typecast that other people have viewed me as. And may I become who you created me to be a beloved child made in your image. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your, I thank you for your brilliance. I thank you for this moment with this woman, the way that you flipped the script. I thank you for the ways that you help us to move beyond the stories that have been told about us. And I pray that you begin to release us from the typecast that, have been, that we've been locked in and that you would begin to write a new story with our lives, a story of hope, a story of freedom, and a story of new possibilities. In Jesus' name, amen.